the throw. He looks, he throws. Touchdown! Andre Reid for the touchdown. The Bills have scored. It is Bedlam. It is pandemonium. It is pandemonium. It is fantastic. Bills can win it here. Wright puts it down. The kick is on the way, and it is good. And the Bills have won it. The Bills have won it. Incredible. What a comeback by the Bills. So someday, when the uh, Sportscasters box set is released, yeah, we're going to have a nice couple of segments to put in the bonus features okay. from last week, the lost episode of the Sportscasters. Oh, yeah. Because no one will ever get to hear, unless you know, until the box set comes out, no one will be able to hear our thoughts on Jordan Spieth's attempts at a third major in a row. The dominance of Serena Williams. My ranking of all of my 12 right. grandparents. Never will that show be heard. It just struck me that I never had to post the show last week. Yes, it just never happened. We did our work. Uh-huh. I did one of the interviews. Okay. And then the other one, for reasons that people will not know until the box set, never happened in a replacement for that interview. Just never materialized. It was the first time that a fluid situation, as we call it here, uh, dried up, I guess. Yeah. There was no fluid. <laughs> Who? Uh, I know we were saying we were going to have a baseball guest, which we have this week. Yes. Uh, was that the tough one to find last week? Yeah. You know, it was a weird week, I think, because of the All-Star game. Yeah. So people at the beginning of the week were bouncing around Cincinnati and not having a ton of time. And then after, they were bouncing to a quick vacation. Okay. You know what I mean? And I just didn't get a chance to switch to switch gears and eventually it's just like, you know what? We did just we just did a six in a row run. They can wait till Tuesday. Yeah. You know, because but then it's like Friday, I'm still scrambling and I'm like Yeah, yeah. No point. Right. Yeah. So uh, we'll start the show today because I am one hundred percent confident that this will make uh the website. And the thousands of fans um, suffering from the sportscasters DTs <laughs> uh, will have their their withdrawals uh, taking away. Great, so poetic. Uh, it's <laughs> season five, episode twenty two, and uh, July twenty second, two thousand fifteen. I assume this will be uh, touching your ears. Jeff Passan, the original guest of the sportscasters, will make his tenth appearance since he debuted in January of two thousand eleven. Ten times. Yeah, the OG. One of the uh, one of the guys that is kind of like a friend, um, off of the mics in a professional relationship kind of way. Like not a friend, like he's going to invite me to a son's birthday party or something, right? But like someone that absolutely, whenever our paths across, we would make time to get a drink or whatever. Which is funny because we almost ruined that right away. We did, somehow. yeah, we yeah. did. Um, and I just had to go to him and say, look, I made a mistake, and luckily he understood, and he's been on nine times since then. Yeah, so I so, think he's over it. Yeah. Uh, and also, John Pessa, who is the, was the collateral damage and everything that went down 
last week, uh, will be with us to talk about his book, The Game Inside the Secret World of Major League Baseball's Power Brokers. Okay. Um, so that will be the second interview. Uh, we have an update to the book club today, and we'll end the show with one last thing. We can start it now with three things. Let's play a game. All right. Mm-hmm. Count of three. One. All righty. I'll take it off. Two. The oil patterns on a PBA lane are very, very difficult. Three. I might be able to beat Jamarcus Russell at quarterback. <laughs> <laughs> this is the funnest night ever. <laughs> Did we just become best friends? Yep. Now let's move on to other business. So as we predicted last week, Jack, Zach Johnson uh, won the British Open. If uh, we would have been able to publish it, you would have heard Don and I <laughs> oh, yeah, we were uh, saying that Zach Johnson, you know, he hadn't won a major since uh, he ruined, uh, he took away Chris Jury's cover spot on Sports Illustrated by winning the Masters oh. back in 2007. Uh, but he won a really exciting British Open that was sort of spoiled a bit by weather, as it seemed pretty much every day. They were just doing the best to get this thing in at St. Andrews. And um, basically, Monday, it went into Monday, a whole day of uh, play there. And in the last minutes, uh, Jordan Spieth had the putter in his hand uh, several times to take control of this tournament. He had a four putt at eight, I believe. And um, he just could not make the putts late and finish one shot off of the what was a three-man playoff. As him and Jason Day just missed making it a five-man playoff or even winning uh, winning the tournament uh, on 18. Uh, and then Jack Johnson won the... Uh, why am I having so much trouble saying lot Zach of, Johnson? A lot of Johnsons. Uh, he won the uh, four-hole playoff over two other guys. So, Spieth, man, did he make a run at making that PGA interesting uh, for the Triple Crown reasons. I still say it's going to be damn interesting compared to many of them. Just I think just the appeal... Him being there, you know, is going to be it's going to be sick. He made like a fifty foot putt on what hole was it? I want to say sixteen to get to fifteen under, and I mean it was Tiger esque. You know, it was a shot that only Tiger Woods make could make, and he's not quite to that level yet. But man, is he he's knocking on it more than anyone has. Even I, McElroy, I think. I heard a lot of chatter this morning that he choked. That he actually maybe. choked on the putt a little bit. Yeah, maybe. But I mean, man, to finish but one that's a, off the leader. You know, it's a lot of pressure to be rolling around with for the last month. And to be yeah, right there, you know, maybe it did buckle him a little bit. And uh, But he's still very young. Very, very young. I did not watch the final day because You're at work. Well, I watched what I thought was the final right. day. Right. Uh, in the morning, You what we said last week, which no one will hear, uh was like what I watch TV, and I said golf does get me there sometimes. And like you said, it's during like it's just after breakfast or whatever. And I was sitting around waiting to do something. Can't remember getting ready to go somewhere, and I turned golf on. For some reason, my daughter thought Dustin Johnson was the bad guy. <laughs> I don't know why that was. I don't know what it was about him. I'm now, sure. actually, Dustin or Zach? No, Dustin Johnson. Okay. okay. Yeah, because at that point, I think he was leading or one of the leaders. She, on- she thought he was the heel. Yeah, for some reason, she goes, uh, like, look at these guys got to hit this tiny ball in a little hole. I'm trying to explain golf to her how, how hard it is and everything. And she's like, is he the bad guy? I'm like, I don't, I don't think so. He <laughs> seems like a nice enough guy. <laughs> Maybe she is not a Paulina Gretzky fan. I get, oh, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> Guess not. 
All right. Well, a couple weeks, it'll be the PGA. And I'm excited to see how he bounces back. And I'm also excited to see kind of ghoulishly if Tiger Woods can make a cut. Because that's two majors in a row where he didn't come close to it. Um, So a couple weeks away uh, for the PGA and the end of the fourth major at golf. Not as cool as it would have been if Jordan would have finished that off. But bravo, Jordan. I mean, it's a hell of a run. Yeah, I heard uh, some talk this morning about the tournament, and they said that it's going to be tough to ever have a guy like Woods where Woods would just go out and destroy the field, and it wouldn't even make it close. But they said now what you have is a lot of guys that are very good. Maybe not just one guy killing everybody, but you got three or four guys at the top that can win any week. So it did, even though he didn't, isn't going to complete uh, the... What is it called? The Grand Slam. Grand Slam. Uh, it, it has brought some interest to golf, it seems like. And let's say he wins the PGA. He's going to finish his year with three majors and he one missed he missed by, by one, one shot. shot. Yeah. So, sick year regardless. And like oh, yeah. you said, there's, a, there's something there. There's a little buzz there that yeah. maybe has been missing. Fan Expo LLC. You know them? No. No. Well, they're suing the NFL. Fan Expo. Yeah, they're suing them for $1 million in damages. Now, get this. There's some names we know here. Uh, They were scheduled to have an event in Vegas at the Venetian from July 10th to 12th, a fantasy football event, okay? And um, it was supposed to feature 60 NFL players, including Tony Romo, Odell Beckham, the Gronk, Des Bryant. But five weeks before the event, so I'm guessing the end of May sometime, uh, I do know Fan Expo, I think. Yeah, well, the suit alleges, their suit alleges that NFL officials called people associated with players who were getting paid to come, their teams, their families, their agents, and in some cases even their parents to tell them they would be fined or suspended if they attended the convention. Now get this. The NFL Network, or the NFL also told the NFL Network's Michael Fabiano that if he remained the host of the event... He would risk losing his job. Now, the NFL's gambling policy states that the league does not allow participating in any appearances that are held or sponsored by a gambling-related establishment. But Fan Expo LLC argues that the three-day event wasn't in violation of the policy. There's a Fan Expo uh, that runs like Comic-Cons. Type things. Uh, I don't. Bel- I'm looking at the Fan Expo website right now. I don't believe it's the same people. So apparently, you well, can just have that title. Now, are they saying even they, more? They can't appear there as like featured guests, or they can't even go to the event. Well, I mean, I read it word for word, but you weren't paying attention because you were looking them <laughs> up. <laughs> so you'll have to listen back to answer that question. So I don't want to read it again. The suit does argue that the NFL's gambling policy. Uh, gets more complicated because the Saints had training camp last year on the site of a resort that has a 103,000-square-foot casino. And the Detroit Lions got a sponsorship from the MGM Grand Detroit. Um, this Tony Romo said this on The Herd today. Yeah, this is his thing. If we had known about the issue of the place or thought that there was something that could have been an issue, the NFL could have told us right away. The NFL never called me or my agency or the NFFC. Um, the event was canceled. Uh, this place had a refund money. They're pissed off and there will be lawyers, as they say on Twitter. Um, 
man, the NFL has sort of had a, a love affair with fantasy football. Uh, and man, did they take a preemptive <laughs> strike at it here. Uh, it's not necessarily about fantasy football, it seems, as much as about this being held at the Venetian. Um, but this will be an interesting one to see how this shakes out. Uh, because it's funny to see the headlines. Uh, I'm reading one article about this and looking at like the related headlines. One of the headlines is Tony Romo's fantasy football event was canceled because the NFL is vindictive and boring. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, you always hear players. You know, the players play fantasy football, right? You know? This, this, I I know the NFL is bulletproof or so they think, but I think people would have said that maybe about baseball and boxing a hundred years ago. You know, and Fantasy football is a major, major, major part of the sport. I don't know why the NFL plays like they're not uh, because they can't have their hand in all the money. Is that what bothers them? I don't understand. I don't understand why the NFL goes out of the way to kind of. I mean, they have fantasy football on their own site, unless that's all they want. They just they want to be the only guys able to play. I, I don't know. It'll be interesting. It's definitely something that uh, that we'll definitely keep an eye on and. Kind of ironically, I reached out to Fabiano today to say, hey, when can we talk do fantasy? a preseason yeah. fantasy? Uh, I'm going to guess he's not going to be in the mood to talk about this uh, when no. we have him on. So, yeah, probably won't. I probably can't bring it up. Yeah, maybe ask him before he comes on the air or something. Yeah, maybe get a off-the-record off kind of. Yeah, that's strange. Uh, speaking of the NFL and Buffalo, we played the highlight off the top. A legend here in Buffalo passed yeah. away this weekend. Van Miller died, I think, at 87. He lived a great life. He called the first ever Bills game, was the voice of the Bills through the uh, good times of the uh, Super Bowl era in the 90s. And uh, along with Rick Jenneret, kind of gave us a couple of distinct voices for our our teams, do you have a Van Miller moment or memory? I'm such a mushmouth. No, I mean, the ones that come to mind are all the ones that have just been played to death that I don't know if I remember the plays better or his call of them better because they've been played so often, like the ones he played at the top of the, the comeback game. For uh, someone who's one year younger than me, it always shocks me how little you seem to remember about the Super Bowl era. Yeah, it would have been eight when it started. Yeah, I mean, you're only one year younger than me. I was nine. I, yeah. I don't know. So so weird to me, especially since I was never a fan of the team. Uh, maybe it's just the environment I grew up in was more football maybe. important. Maybe, yeah. The game, I mean, my, I don't think I watched the Super Bowls with my parents any of the times. They had gone out every time. Maybe, maybe. So are you telling me you don't really recall Van Miller as the voice of the Bills? No, no, no. I recall oh. him. I just don't have a specific memory. Like if you, I don't even know how long he's been gone. I bet it's more years than I would guess, though. Like I still associate him. Yeah, I would say as 10. the voice. So yeah, that's, throwing a guess. That's out. that seems crazy to me. It feels like he's been gone for like three years, but that's probably closer to right ten. But he's the guy. I mean, it, any Bills fan would say that, that he's the one they associate with. You know, and I have to give John Murphy credit actually because he's done a good job. I don't know if he his status in Buffalo. Is anywhere near? No, it's obviously not anywhere near Van Miller, right. especially this week, and it's not anywhere near Rick Jenneret. But usually, you never want to be the guy who replaces the guy. You kind of want to be the guy who replaced the guy. But I don't see any reason that Murphy won't be 
the voice of the Bills for another 20 years, maybe. Yeah, he's fine. He's good. And I think by then, everyone will look back and say, he stepped into some really difficult shoes and oh, yeah. did a decent job doing it. I think when you... I saw Van Miller described... I can't remember who wrote the article, but the headline was something like, he was the perfect homer. And that's kind of what Rick Jenneret is, too. People right. that deny that are, are crazy. But. And the hard thing about replacing Jenneret is going to be, he's the voice of TV as well. You know, in the NFL, right, right. Yep. The, the, the games on TV are called by someone different every week. Well... You know, in the case of Jenneret and the Sabres, he's calling every big moment on TV and on radio. I, th- um, I think with, that's going to be difficult. I think with my play-by-play guys, I want a guy like Jenneret or Miller. I understand why they're loved for being homers. Or I want a guy that's just a good professional. Like I always talk about hockey has uh, uh, the devil's guy. He does... He just seems to love hockey. Man, his name is escaping me right now. Thorne? You talking about Gary Thorne? No, no, no. The, uh, talking about Doc Emmerich? Doc Emmerich. Okay. Emmerich, yeah. I really like Emmerich. He's he doesn't. I mean, he has a team that he calls, but he never comes across as a homer, like or like has any rooting interest in the national broadcast. He's just very professional. Gary Thorne has been the voice of the video games in the past, but uh, uh, so I like I like guys that are either just true professional broadcasters, or I want a guy to be a homer. Like I I think Murphy might be a little bit too in the middle, maybe, or maybe he just doesn't have like Van Miller has like a distinct. Uh, kind of nasally voice, and Jenneret has obviously a really distinct voice. So maybe that's a little bit different too. But maybe that's what you needed at that spot. You couldn't have had maybe like a wacky character come in and replace them after that, with being the icons locally they are. Well, rest in peace, Van Miller. Uh, we love Buffalo, both of us. We agree on that. How much we love our city, and this was a guy who was a big voice of it, and uh, certainly he'll be missed. We're going to take a break and come back with Jeff Passan. All right, our next guest is from Cleveland, Ohio, and is a graduate of Syracuse. He's the lead baseball columnist for Yahoo Sports, the author of Death of the BCS, co-author, and the first to ever appear on the show. He's making his 10th appearance today a warm sportscasters welcome to jeff passon what's up jeff just drove by a lady riding in the middle of the street on a rascal with what looked like her grandson oh no it sounds so dangerous that's what happens when you're driving through prairie village kansas man got old people crossing the street with their grandkids and rascals you know kansas is one of those states that i have no no perception of. I have no idea what it could be like. Really? I think everyone finds Kansas to be boring. Yeah. Which is which is sort of true. <laughs> it's, I mean, it's not New York. It's not Chicago. I was, in, it, I was it, in St. Louis it is, once. It is, it is very nice and very comfortable. Yeah, I was in St. Louis once. Obviously, it's in Missouri, but that's about probably the closest I've ever been to it. Yeah, I apologize that you had to go there. Oh, that was brutal. Yeah, that was <laughs> – I remember we were driving from the airport, and uh, I was a little naive, a little younger at the time, and I looked out of the, ca- the the taxi, and I said, oh, man, it looks like you're driving us to some pretty rough neighborhoods, and the taxi driver said, oh, no, man, it's just old. It's just old. And I was like, oh, okay, <laughs> old. <laughs> I, looking back, I think that I was correct. I'm going to be in lovely St. Louis uh, right after the Hall of Fame, so – uh, looking forward to that. 
Yeah, you know there'll that inter- there will be an interesting story coming out of there. I think just a little tease there. Interesting story coming out of the Hall of Fame or St. Louis. St. Louis. St. Louis. Okay. Hopefully, uh, all goes all goes according to plan. Should be thought provoking. I googled uh, how far away I live from the Hall of Fame because I've never been there, despite it being in my state, and um, it's like five hours, so might as well be fifty, I what? guess. Oh, come on. You don't drive five hours? Well, the most I'll drive is six. Then I start looking for planes. Okay. But there's only five hours worth of things to do there. So to drive five yeah, hours. I know, but if you're, if you're the, I mean, this is a pretty historic, Sarah. I mean, we're talking two of the greatest pitchers ever. Indisputably two of the greatest ever. You know, like the Sandy Koufax of our time and Pedro Martinez. And I don't even know who to comp to Randy Johnson. I mean, Nolan Ryan, maybe? Yeah, kind of. It's probably the closest comparable to Randy Johnson there is because of longevity, strikeouts, wildness. You know, I mean, really, two absolute titans. John Smoltz, the first Tommy John guy to go in the Hall of Fame, a great starter, a great relief pitcher. You know, part of the the Braves could have been dynasty in the 90s. Right. And, and Craig Vigio, a guy who, frankly, probably should have been in the year before, even the year before that, but, uh, you know, uh, a, a true up-the-middle uh, star who I think never got the due that was, was his uh, when he was playing and has been appreciated for his longevity afterwards. I really wanted to see... Maddox is my favorite player of all time, probably. And I, I was tempted last year, but I... Forget last year, it just ended up being a bad weekend, so I, I didn't think about it as much as I should have. But you make a great case for for the class this year. That's a that's a great class. There's still, there's, there's still time. I mean, it's been oh god, I think it's been something like fifty years since four guys were inducted in the same year by the BBWA. There's there's just a deluge coming right now, and we're probably gonna feel back a little, but uh, you know. Maybe you just wait for Junior to go in. I don't know if you were a Junior guy. I don't know anybody at our age who wasn't a Junior guy. Oh, yeah. I love watching him play for sure. Yeah. yeah. Junior is the best, man. I love Jeter, too. Um, only I, I always wonder why I love Jeter because I certainly didn't at the beginning of his career, but I just gained such a respect for the way he did things as years went on. But you just you know so little about him. It's like almost scary to scary to like him because just you feel like you know so little about him. Um, you yeah, just... how much do you know about Junior? Oh yeah, not much. But I mean, I feel like that's sort of taken on its own mythology with Junior. Like the fact that we know so little has become like a talking. We don't know dick about any athletes. I mean, that really is the truth. Right. And Try so... hard and. The, the fact is, there are so many good people out there in marketing departments, like trying to tell us what we need to know about guys. That truly getting to know who a guy is or what he stands for is next to impossible. There are a few now and again who really put themselves out there, but most athletes these days, and not just baseball, but every sport, are exceedingly manufactured. I was thinking about the Hall of Fame during during the uh, All Star Game before it when they were doing the uh, the ceremonies with the four living players and and then it, they kind of 
closed it with the four greatest players. And when Johnny Bench was one of them, I was like, there's got to be someone alive better than Johnny Bench. And I was thinking about it, I'm like, oh, it's Barry Bonds. But, <laughs> but they, it's Barry Bonds, it's Frank Robinson, it's Yogi Berra. I mean, we could go on and on about people who are alive a little better than Right, and that might if, that might. If the All Star game, you know what? If the All Star game were in Kansas City, George Brett would have been the fourth guy. Right, and that's fair. It just got me thinking about it, and then like thinking about Bonds, and, and I read something just before we talked about how, I guess, investigating Bonds or whatever it was that was happening through the government is over, with no conclusion. Is is there ever come around for Bonds? Like, is he ever get to be? celebrated at all or is he just on the ban list for good you know i think a lot of that depends on how the national view on steroids and performance drugs evolves as it currently stands there is no chance that barry bonds is going to get into the hall of fame through the baseball writers association there's just um, there's not enough momentum at this point there's not that one thing that has happened now if Mike Piazza gets it, I'm not saying Mike Piazza used. I have no idea whether Mike Piazza used. Right. There are a lot of people out there that do believe that Mike Piazza used there. And I do wonder if once Mike Piazza gets in, some of those people who have not been voting for him or for Barry Bonds because of the question, uh, you know, the steroid question, will suddenly say, well, if there's one guy in, we should let them all in. And, and that's been my perspective from the start. I, I just do not know who used and who didn't. And to guess or to assume is so presumptuous. And, and frankly, not just wrong, but arrogant. I think you know who is on drugs. It gets back to the fact that we don't know these guys. And I... I you know, I boiled it down to, to a binary choice. Either I could exclude all of them or I could include all of them. Because I feel like once you start parsing those little details, you're bound to be wrong. And I don't want to try and act like a moral authority toward one guy when I'm not taking any moral authoritarianism toward another person and I get it wrong. Do you so, vote? So what ends up happening is that binary choice turns into another binary. Uh, do I want to ignore history, or do I want to acknowledge history, even though it may be ugly, even though it may be dirty, even though, uh, you know, morally and ethically, it may be wrong. I, I choose to take my history as history presents itself, because history is ugly, and history is repugnant at times. And this was an era in baseball that it's not proud of, and it shouldn't be proud of, but it's an era that deserves acknowledgement nevertheless. Yeah, and I mean, acknowledging history is sort of the point of a Hall of Fame. Yeah, it is. But right. the Baseball Hall of Fame, unfortunately, right. quite often portrays itself as this, this pristine hall of, uh, you know, good things and, and warm fuzzies. I, I know they've tried to stay balanced. Uh, you know, showing Pete Rose exhibits, for example, things along those lines. They've done a nice job of that. But, but the powers that be who were in charge of the Hall of Fame could have years ago come out and said, we want this Hall of Fame to include all of these different things, the good parts of baseball and that. They never did that. There has never been a single uh, statement or indication from the Hall of Fame uh, 
that they would be okay with Barry Bonds or Sammy Sosa or Mark McGuire or any of the, you know, Rafael Palmeiro, any of the guys uh, who we know to have used going in. Do you have a vote for the Hall of Fame? I do. And do you make public who you vote for or no? I do. This will be my third time voting this upcoming year. And first two times I voted for Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens. And Mike Piazza and Jeff Bagwell and all the other guys whose names have been intertwined fairly or unfairly uh, with performance-enhancing drugs. Because I feel like with what I know, all I can go on is the performance. I feel like I have to fall on the best players or the players who perform the best. And and it doesn't, you know, knowing that some of these guys did what they did and they understood the rules and understood they were cheating, it doesn't make me feel good necessarily, but I think it's the right thing to do and the fair thing to do. And that's, you know, those are the two standards to which I hold myself with that vote. Right. I wonder if... Uh... You know, it's interesting, too, like, as the years go on, people who absolutely, maybe not players, but other people that get into the hall, that look the other way uh, during the steroid era will absolutely be in. You know, like, totally. Yeah, so, yeah, I don't know. It's uh, it's something that, I mean, I, I don't vote like you do, but I'm glad you vote the way you do because it just, it's like you said, it's very, it's very uh, silly. And then we have years where nobody gets in, which was the silliest year of, yeah. of it all. I, you know what? I understand why some of my peers vote how they do. I, I was not covering baseball in the midst of this, which just goes to show you how far removed we are. The fact that this, right. is, uh, this is, I think, uh, what is this? I think my 13th year covering baseball. Wow. And, yeah. And so maybe 12th year. It's been a while now. And, uh, you know, we're, you know I, I, I did not cover... I think the closest I came to it was summer of 98. Now, summer of 99, uh, I was interning uh, at good old USA Today Baseball Week. And I covered Mark McGuire that summer. That is about as close to PED as I actually got. And that was the year after the home run chase. That was the year after that. Yeah. Yeah. That was year. Yeah, Mark McGuire still had a a throng of media surrounding his every move. I don't remember what question I asked, and I think it was, you know, I think it was in the midst of like the Steve Wilson Andro thing. Mm. You know, it's like I vaguely recall asking him a question with regards to that, having him shoot me a dirty look, but <laughs> like 15 years ago, and maybe I'm just making it up in my head now. I don't know. I I think though that was the summer of '99. Uh, Mark McGuire, obviously the home run guy. Did you enjoy the home run derby? Shift gears a little bit. I did enjoy the home run derby. Yeah, I, I wonder I how it. I wonder how much of it though uh, is is Todd Frazier and how much of it was the new format. Like if Todd Frazier weren't in it and weren't doing well, do you think the Reds fans would have been nearly as into it? And if the Red fans were not nearly as into it, do you think the atmosphere would have been as good? And if the atmosphere weren't as good, you could think it would have played as well on you. I'm a little dubious about that. So Right, that's a hard uh, question. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know whether it was a correlation or a positive, uh, but I know it was fun this year. And it certainly did a nice job of uh, making the home run derby 
uh, an enjoyable thing to watch for the first time in I don't know how long. Yeah, and they caught a break, too, I think, with taking some of the bonuses and things out to make sure they got it in with the rain. Yeah, I, I think even four minutes might be a little long. I think three minutes might be the ideal time. Yeah, but uh, taking that stuff out, I think, really really helped them. Um, overall, though, I thought it was uh, you know, a great night um, and didn't the next night wasn't nearly as great. Obviously, it's sort of a dud of a game. Um, and we have the black cloud of allowing it, the World Series to be uh, decided in some way with that game. But you, I know you wrote about that. Um, what about now the next thing? It's like, you know, you go through things. It's like, all right, you got to get to opening day. And then after opening day, it's uh, maybe Memorial Day is a landmark or whatever, 4th of July, All-Star Game. Now the next thing is trade deadline. And we haven't had a really, really interesting one in a while. Is there any reason to believe that this one might be interesting? I mean, there's a lot of pitching that's going to be available. And if David Price ends up out there, boy, that's even more. I mean, we have a, a remarkably good free agent class coming up. I mean, like, probably the best free agent class I've ever seen. <laughs> and, yeah, I mean, David Price, Johnny Cueto, that great, he's going to be a free agent. Uh, you know, Scott Casimir, Jeff Samarja, Jordan Zimmerman. Uh, you know, Doug Fister, well, before this year, Doug Fister was interesting, not quite as much now. Uh, Justin Upton, Jason Hayward. I mean, there are a lot of guys who could be getting nine-figure contracts. And uh, a bunch of those guys have a chance to be traded. And so when Upton is put out there, as long as he can heal up, uh, I think he's going to be a huge commodity if Price is out there. He's going to be a, you know, he, Detroit's going to be able to ask quite a bit for him. Johnny Cueto as well. And, and there are even the guys who aren't going to be free agents, but their teams are in Selma. So there are a lot of names out there, uh, and I think it has a chance to become eventually a, a very, uh, very interesting deadline. It's just not that quite yet. Who are the most interesting potential buyers? Hell, isn't everyone a buyer these days? Yeah, well, that's, that's the thing, what, right? That's why we haven't had a good one in so long. Yeah, that's sort of what yeah. makes it interesting. But you have enough sellers to to drive the prices up, and uh, the, there's there is a glut of pitching right now in this trade market. But everybody needs pitching, so a glut of pitching isn't the worst thing. You know, a few weeks ago, this was a sellers' market. Uh, I think it's sort of even back out where the supply and demand are are pretty. Uh, pretty even, but uh, what I'm most curious about is to see just the way that the, the trade dynamics make out. Because if you go and look at what David Price fetched last, uh, you know, last July, wasn't as much people expected. That was a year and a half of David Price. Right. Two months of David Price that's coming up right now. And so for, you know, for the Cubs to have gotten Addison Russell and Billy McKinney for Jason Hamill and uh, Jesse Marger was the coup of coups. Uh, you didn't see that with David Price. Uh, Drew Smiley and Willie Ottomus and Nick Franklin. Franklin's been bad, and Ottomus is, is a pretty good prospect, and Smiley's hurt right now, but it looked like a, a solid pitcher. So there, there are going to be some, uh, some very interesting things at play here just to see how much value is assigned, especially to these rental players, who you're not going to be able to get draft picks 
Right. Do you think anyone's going to try to be super aggressive and jump the deadline a bit? Like, do you think we'll we'll see a really big name move kind of before the deadline and kind of set the bar? And... You know, generally speaking, that sort of has happened already. Uh, if in years past, right? I mean, we're 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 in three weeks into July right now, and there's nothing at this point. And you know, things can change in a snap, but you know, all's quiet on the Western Front right now. Yeah, you're headed to um, to Kansas City and uh, and Pittsburgh, and I'm jealous for sure. I'd love to be watching uh, Cole pitch tonight and uh, see, uh, like you mentioned, just the atmosphere involved in a Royals and Pirates game is beyond comprehension of, a few years back. But when we talked in the last time you were on was in April, we were kind of talking about the season and then looking ahead. And you weren't the only one, but the Royals were a team a lot of people thought would regress a bit. Why do you think they haven't? Uh, I think their offense has jumped forward, and I think I probably, you know, undervalued their bullpen and defense. And uh, it's it's easy to do that because they're not flashy, they're not exciting, but they help win games. Uh, I'm still shocked, frankly, that with as bad as their starting pitching has been, that the Royals are anywhere near what they are right. because they're starting they're starting pitching. It's not good. I mean, it's just not. Edison Volquez has had a really nice year, and otherwise, uh, I guess you can say Chris Young's been solid, but uh, aside from those two, it has been uh, a pretty big mess. And so uh, the the fact that the Royals are about 20 games over 500 at this point, with that in play, is is staggering. And I think they probably still have a little room to, to move back, but uh, let's let's just say they're 18 games over 500. That's a 90 win team, and if they're winning 90 games, they're probably winning the AL Central. What are you most interested in here, second half? What are the things you're following? I always like to ask this question because um, I love to to find out how your mind your minds work. What, what are you looking uh, looking ahead to in the second half? What are the the main stories you're pumped about? You know, I want to see if St. Louis can keep keep this up. They have some insane numbers. If you go and look at the Cardinals pitching with runners in scoring position, remember when the Cardinals were just on fire like three years ago maybe with runners in scoring position when they they hit like 330 for an entire season? Mm -hmm. They're essentially doing that except pitching now. So their pitchers are holding opponents to an absurdly low number. Uh, you know, low slash line with runners in scoring position. And that's a big reason why they are where they are. So I want to see if they can hold on uh, and, and be the one great team uh, in this bleak baseball landscape of mediocrity. And, and I want to see in that vein uh, just how many teams uh, end up as close to 500 as they are right now. I think isn't the worst team in the American League like playing 450 baseball right now? Uh, the worst team in the American League has forty-two wins, forty-two and fifty-one. Yeah, four fifty-two. Yeah, yeah. I think it's I think it's the Red Sox and the Mariners, right? Red Sox, Mariners, and White Sox. And White Sox. Well, the White Sox are actually four sixty, a little better. They don't have as many losses, same amount of wins, but not as many losses. A little. I better. mean, a four a four fifty baseball team, not a good team, but it's certainly not a terrible team. Right, not a disaster, like a disaster. And to have an entire freaking league at 450 or better it says, says a lot about 
parody in baseball, which I don't like. Uh, I also want to see what the hell the Phillies do, especially if Cole Hamels goes. It's time for him to go, but at this point, uh, you know, I, I just I, I can't tell whether they're going to bring down their asking price for him to a level that makes sense for other teams because it, they haven't yet. There's been a holding pattern for more than a year now where they're just misjudging value on their guys. What is your? Uh, we'll let you go in a second. Uh, what is your World Series uh, pick right now? Would you change it from preseason? I don't remember what you told me in April, but where are you at now? God, I don't even remember. I had Nationals. What did I have? I think I might have had Nationals and Tigers. That sounds. So, yeah. That sounds familiar. Yeah, I'm definitely going to change the Tigers. <laughs> right, yeah. down on that one. Yeah. I. You know what I. I'm not making a pick right now. I'm okay. popping out. I don't know who the hell to pick in the American League. And I think it would be irresponsible, frankly, to do so before the trade deadline. True. Because there are, there are a bunch of moves that can be made. And uh, it's just, you know, it, it can change in an instant. And so I, I still like the Nationals against all reasons, considering they're barely up on the Mets right now. I still do like them. Uh, I, I think hopefully... You know, they're going to get some of their guys back, and once they do get their guys back, they're going to, uh, you know, going to turn back into the team that we expected them to be. But uh, Cardinals are looking awfully good at this point. Yeah. Uh, Pirates Pirates are really good, and I expect the Dodgers to make some kind of a splash. And, and those, the Cardinals and Pirates are both so good at home. I mean, it's unbelievable. I feel bad yeah. if, if uh, to, I wouldn't want to be the road team if they meet in the playoffs. Very last thing, and I'll let you go. The, the Astros, the last time they're 3-7. and seven. Um, you think it's kind of down from here, or do you think they can recapture what made them so good in the first half and really make a run, or do you think they've kind of competed at that level for as long as they have? I, you know, I talked to the GM probably two weeks ago now, and asked him who the best team in the American League, and he said the Astros. Uh, I, you know, even though they're back, even though the Angels are hot, I'm sort of inclined to agree with him. I think they need some help. There's no question about that. But, but, they've got that X factor in Carlos Correa that very, very few other teams have. I think Carlos, you know, another GM said Carlos Correa is one of the 10 best players in baseball. And I figured by the end of the year, I was saying he's going to be, you know, top 25, top 20. He's like, nah, he's one of the 10 best right now. And so, uh, to, to have that guy, and to add him to a team that had been as successful as the Astros were before he came up, uh, I think is the type of thing that, uh, with another pitcher, could push them over the top. All right, man. Have fun at the game tonight. Um, we actually talked baseball today, so I'm happy with us. We didn't just fuck around the whole time. Um, I know. It's a, it's a novel idea, right? <laughs> yeah, it's at Jeff Passon on Twitter. You can read his columns on Yahoo uh, a couple times a week. Uh, always great to us. Thanks so much. Enjoy the game tonight. Thanks, brother. Talk to you soon. See ya. All right. I want to thank Jeff Passon for being on the podcast today. I was telling Don, Jeff is our planes, trains, and automobiles guest. Never quite sure where we're going to be. When we talked to him today, he was in the car on the way to the Pirates and uh, Royals game. Thanks to Jeff. All right. Uh... In a second, we are going to go to an interview we recorded last week, although none of it is dated, with John Pessa, 
the author of The Game, Inside the Secret World of Major League Baseball's Power Brokers. Uh, I enjoyed this, as you will find out in the interview. Uh, and um, I look forward to you hearing it and hearing feedback on uh, the book and the author. Now, every year around this time, we usually pick a book club book of the year. So I started to think about that. Does anything come to mind, Don, when I say this would be this year's book club book of the year? Hmm. Two things come t- came to my mind. One was my favorite book this year was probably the Bob McKenzie book. Okay. I loved it. I, I am reluctant to make it the book club book of the year because he would be very difficult uh, to round up. Yeah. I wouldn't even know how to begin to talk to him. This is like one of those award shows where you know they're picking the people that actually showed up. A- absolutely. At the show. We hide nothing from that. Right. Although I don't know. There definitely wasn't a book other than Sweetness we would have picked. Like, that was absolutely the best book we read that year. Right. Uh, there definitely wasn't a book other than Dream Team. Those two books are probably my favorite books I've read because of the book club. And last year, The Squared Circle by David Shoemaker is maybe my favorite book about wrestling ever. So hmm. I don't know if in the past that's ever really mattered. But maybe it does this year because when I just start thinking about it, that book comes to mind. The other thing that comes to mind that was just as great is the documentary. Oh, right. And I wonder if that can be the book club book of the year. Yeah, we could probably get that guy back. Oh, yeah, he would come back. It's not a book, but it jumps right to mind. Those are the two things that jump to mind. Right. The McKenzie book and the documentary. It'd be interesting to get a follow-up from him, too, to see how all of that went on the heels of the 30 for 30. I I mean, that was... right. Horrible coincidence, I guess, for yeah. for him. But So, yeah, I'm going to start thinking about that. We'd love to hear any feedback. Um, and while we do that, we have a new book club book of the month in my hand. Hot off the presses. Okay. The Secret of Golf, the story of Tom Watson and Jack Nicholas by one of the most polarizing authors in the history of the book club book of the month. Joe, Joe Pizanski, yeah. yeah, not quite the media outrage and controversy. No, this one uh, over this book much smoother. Nice yeah. <laughs> um, of course, his last book, which was featured as a book club book of the month, Paterno, mm-hmm. was a shitstorm. It definitely was because when everything went down, if you don't, if you weren't a fan in this era of the sportscasters, we were on this. Yep, like we knew he was there following paterno around right like we knew he was doing this and then when the story broke and paterno was fired the first thing we kind of thought of was like wow joe Piznanski was there d- doing that this book is going to be right crazy we, we asked some of his peers and some of them straight up said he should just burn that book and like, that peer was john wertheim that's right wertheim who then was actually scolded by Piznanski right for saying what he did on our podcast Yep, and um, eventually the book came out, and eventually he did come on, uh, nonetheless, to talk about yeah, it. And I always, did, right. I always wondered if he came on to talk about it because he didn't realize or forgot that this was the podcast that Wertheim said that stuff. Hmm. Now, I, I wasn't going to come out and ask him, right? But I always wondered, like, 
did he not know this was the place or did he not care or did he forget? Right. Uh, but, you know, then the next couple times that Wertheim was on, he was worried. He would say, like, maybe we should cut that out. And then right, he'd be like, right. no, no, I'll leave it. But he was like, you know, and I said, I hope it's nothing I'm doing. And he's like, no, 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 you're fine. <laughs> so, but yeah, this must have been a, a nice, nice change of pace for him. Yeah. And, um, seems like it's not going to be a problem to do what we do with the book. I would. I got two copies in the mail. I would think not, yeah. And uh, I got an email saying, what are some dates? Let's firm this up. So The Secret of Golf, The Story of Tom Watson and Jack Nicholas by Joe Poznanski. And I have a copy. Email me, thesportscasters at gmail.com if you want one. All right. We're going to take a break and come back with John Pessa. Our next guest is from New York City and is a graduate of the University of Maryland. He's one of the founding editors of ESPN the magazine and is the author of a new book called The Game, a look at a 20-year power struggle that changed baseball forever. He's making his first appearance on the podcast today. A warm sportscaster's welcome to John Pessa. How are you doing today, John? Good, Steve. How are you? Yeah, I should have asked you before if your name was you know, pronounced how it looks, so I hope I said that right. Uh, you were one of the few that could nail it. Oh, well, it must be my Western New York accent that, uh, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> yeah, well, I always blame it on that when I screw it up. So I, I guess if I want to do that, I have to, you know, use that as why I got it right. Gotcha. Right. Uh, I'm glad you, you came on today. I really appreciate it. I like the book. We've been talking about it with the listeners, uh, who read and, and also in the book club update, uh, for a while. And I want to get to it for sure. Uh, we're going to talk a lot about it, but I was interested in just kind of researching. Um, you know, we were talking off off before we started for a bit, and you mentioned that maybe one of the things that has uh, been a challenge for the book is, you know, it's by someone that a lot of people don't know, and I, I didn't know who who you were necessarily either. And I've researched uh, in pre- preparation for this and found it really interesting. I mentioned um, in the intro, and, and you mentioned it in the press clippings, and it's in the book as well about being one of the founder founding editors of ESPN, the magazine, and um, the uh, body issue of the magazine has been sitting on my uh, dresser here for the last week. I keep walking by it and wondering if I'm going to open it or not. Uh, Tell me a little bit about what it means or meant to be a founding editor of ESPN, the magazine. Like, What was the mission in founding that magazine? What were you guys hoping to uh, do that didn't exist maybe in Sports Illustrated or somewhere else, and do you think you accomplished it? Well, I think the, the, the guiding principle of that was to replicate the, the tone um, the, and the take that ESPN as a network um, presented, and doing it in print um, as well as they were doing it on, on television. And, and actually, when we started the Internet, the, the, the website um, uh, and most websites hadn't hit critical mass yet, so this was really the way to establish um, ESPN on the um, you know on the print side. And I think there's a certain amount of uh, you know, and, and definitely with John Skipper, um, who's now the, the present head of ESPN, um, 
wanted a place to do more serious journalism when um, at times, and uh, and and they could do that in in print, where um, not necessarily uh, doing it on air. So I think we I do think we accomplished it. Um, you know, it, it, it got the tone. We won magazine of the year over the New Yorker one year, so that was pretty that was pretty cool. And we got to do an awful lot of things. And the, one of the last things in, in my career there was um, uh, the editor uh, who who started the magazine, John Pappenberg, uh, moved on and to a bigger position. And he wanted to put together a team that did the one thing that uh, Sports Illustrated still did um, uh, really well and that we weren't in, and that was investigative journalism. And I got to be um, uh, one of the people who ran that team, and that was real. That was great. That was one of the best things that we got to do there. Yeah, and I think the legacy of that absolutely lives today. I mean, just thinking back, like last year, I know they had the uh, Oklahoma – or was that? I'm trying to think. I know there was. was it, uh, uh, Van Nada did something really big, uh, investigative wise, in ESPN the magazine last year. Yeah, I mean, there's. They, they do. Were, they've done a good job with helmets. Um, they, you know, we did when I was there. We did a, you know, the kind of mission that it wasn't the kind of uh, way they wanted to do it. They gave me seven months and a, and a bunch of reporters to do uh, a story that. Uh, chronicled the rise of steroids in baseball. We started it in the 80s and we took it up to 2005, which is when it published. And uh, it was 28 pages of, of really dedicated to obviously a huge subject in, in, in baseball, which is steroids. And um, it won a lot of awards and we, you know, we told a, a pretty good story that, that needed to be told and that was really when the story was just breaking. Um, and so, you know, they're in a position and they gave the resources, um, to do those kind that kind of journalism. Now you mentioned trying to recreate the, uh, attitude and, uh, the image of ESPN in magazine form. Is that kind of where the idea for the oversights pages and things like that came about, or was that something different? Actually, that was just a, a stroke of genius by a guy named John Walsh, who's kind of legendary in the in the media business. He was a big magazine um, editor for a while, and then he was the one who came up with the whole concept of Sports Center and how it and how how it's done now. And um, uh, he got involved with the magazine, and we were still a regular sized magazine. And he came up with the idea that look, we want to be, we want to. First of all, we want to be noticed. If we go oversized, we will. And if we really do oversized well, and we put an enormous amount of, of resources into art and and design and, and photo, um, then we would we you know basically on the writing side we'd have to screw it up for the magazine not to be successful thankfully we didn't screw it up i think we did a lot of really good things but the look of the magazine made it an immediate um you know you had to look at it and if we did a good job it was going to be a hit and the guys who ran that side did a tremendous job and i think that got espn magazine noticed right off the bat yeah i think one thing that i always really appreciated about it and one thing that i enjoyed from the beginning is it seemed like it utilized color and graphs and shorter things, sort of the way maybe USA Today did for newspapers. It seemed like it did that really well as compared to SI, and it felt like since ESPN the magazine came out, maybe SI has always been trying to catch up to that. In the beginning part of the magazine, the way there's shorter pieces and more colors and graphs and things like that. 
the the thing that I think that the, the those of us and and you know I, I played my role and a lot of other people did too in in um, really coming up with a faster paced magazine that still delivered um, good serious writing as well and you know they you know, they had lived for a long long time on serious good writing and and it was terrific I mean I grew up reading Sports Illustrated I think most of most of my peers did um, but this was just you know, this was just another way to do it. And, you know, people started moving to quicker hitting um, uh, uh, pieces and, and magazines. And, and this was very much a, um, like, a, you know, more of a men's style, men's magazine style, short, quick hits, hip, you know, being on top of the news. And I got to tell you, it, it takes more time to write short than it does write long. Right. Because, you know, 250 words might seem like not a lot, but you have to pack an awful lot into those 250 words, and I think that is truly an art, and there are some people that do it exquisitely well and able to write those short things but say a lot. Yeah, it's like 250 words. You, you sit down to write that, and you have 600, and you're like, oh, man, this is supposed to be 250. So, yeah, yeah, exactly. Trust me, I was there. Man. It, was, yeah. it was tough. I'd worked in, in, in I love long form journalism and I'd worked in newspapers where, you know, you wrote an average game story is 18 to 20 inches long, you know, 800 to a thousand words. And suddenly now you're talking, um, in 250 words, but met, but you have to say the same thing that you just did in a thousand words. And God, you really have to, I mean, it, it's hard and it takes a lot of practice, but there are some people that are really good at it. And I think ESPN had a bunch of those kind of people. Yeah, so listen to this. So last night, I am uh, just hanging out, watching uh, television or whatever, winding down. And I know I'm talking to you tomorrow, and or the next day, today. Last night, I knew tomorrow. Uh, and um, Colston. Hey, the dog. I told you he'd bark. Uh, so <laughs> I knew it because like there's some people paving a driveway next door or something. It's driving them nuts. Uh, so... I knew you were going to be on, and I'm watching um, John Oliver on HBO. I don't know if you've seen this or not yet. And every show, I love his show. Yeah, he does a good show, and he does those like 13 to 15 minute video essays where he just carves something up. Right? He's done FIFA. He's done all kinds he, of his, he, his his take on on the NCAA right. is spot on. So last night he does public funded stadiums. Oh, cool. Just carves yeah. them up. And I'm thinking, wait a minute. Isn't like the first page of John's book? Uh, exactly that. <laughs> exactly yeah. that. Um, it doesn't sound like you got a chance to see his take, but that doesn't really matter necessarily. But it just got me It got me thinking like, wow, here's this book, The Game, and we're talking to John tomorrow about it, and here is John Oliver taking this idea of uh, public-funded stadiums to blast. And, I mean, as a guy who wrote this book, I mean, I'm sure you could repeat his take without even seeing it. Um, and I just found that to be, like, really interesting. Like, wow, we're going to talk to John tomorrow about this. It is. It's, um, it's, it's weird to say it's one of my favorite subjects, but it's something that touches everybody who's going to read the book. You know, the, the you know, talk about, you know, government handouts to give – really, really rich people who've had it unbelievably well. It's never been a better time to be rich in America than it is right now. And to for us to be giving them corporate handouts like that is unbelievable. We don't rebuild our roads. 
And but we build these unbelievable stadiums, and I don't think people even understand the deals that a lot of these guys have. Like the stadium that Bud Selig built, um, all with other people's money, including a lot from, from from taxpayers. Every single penny of every single event, concession, parking ticket goes into the team's pocket. None to the taxpayers who built the stadium, who who then have to pay fifty dollars, sixty dollars to get in. Right. I mean, it just it just doesn't make any sense. I mean, these guys, these people have the money. Let them take the risk. Let them build the stadiums, um, and especially they're going to charge us the prices that they do. You know, once we're inside the stadium, and then let's take the uh, the money and rebuild a crumbling infrastructure. I mean, there's a, there's one c- couple of paragraphs in the book, but I think it's unbelievably topical and, and, and powerful. Is that the richest guy in baseball was Carl Polak? And he was a he was a billionaire, and he refused to build his own stadium, and he threatened to move the team. Finally, after a ten-year battle, they come to where the, the taxpayers are going to fund two-thirds of the stadium. And this is a guy who's worth you know uh, four or five billion dollars, and at the time, you know, ten years ago, that was a lot of money. And um, not that it's, not that it still isn't. And uh, you know. The same week that they break ground for that stadium, the um, a bridge over the Mississippi near Minnesota collapsed, killing 17 people. Uh, why are we spending money on, on stadiums for billionaires when things like right. that are happening? Yeah, and he talked a lot. I mean, Seelig Stadium is, was relatively cheap by today's standards. I mean, maybe not if you scale it out, but I think it was like, I think you said in the book about a $411 million stadium. Yeah, actually it was, it was an expensive stadium, not the most expensive stadium, but the way it's financed, they still haven't retired. It's going to cost over a billion dollars when it's, by the time it's, it's paid off. Right. And he talked a lot about uh, the Marlins new stadium and the enormous amount of money they spent. He talked about in Cincinnati, they did such a bad job negotiating I think it might have been the football stadium, though, not the baseball stadium. It's such a bad job negotiating that that they're on the hook if um, down the road they invent hologram-generated instant replays that they have to build the machine for them. Oh my god! You know, and he talked, yeah. about, you know, and then he also talked about how even the ones that are paid for by the owners, like Yankee Stadium, was built by the Steinbrenners, who are a big part of the book. You know, that's on a piece of land that was given to them for free and tax-free uh, by the city. So. Right, and, and the, the, um, the tax um, arrangements that they were able to make um, gave them a, a, a much more favorable um, way to finance their stadium than you and I would have gotten if we go to buy our house. And, you know, it's just another, you know, it's just another transfer of money to them. I mean, if they paid what you paid when you bought your house on the loan that they took, New York City would make a hell of a lot more money. And right. again, this is a place also where they get to keep all of every single penny of every single event there. Now, he also tried to, you know, say that, hit on some myths, like new stadiums don't help cities. Never. There's, there's no ripple. Do not help the economy. Right. I don't know about Never. I mean, I was in Washington, D.C. You said you spent some time there, I think, too. I mean, that yeah. area where the Verizon Center is, I mean, that was uh, that was not an economic advantage for the city. I mean, now you go down to a Capitals game or a Pearl Jam concert, wherever you're there for, I mean, that's a vibrant area, it seems like. 
True, but what you, what economists will tell you is the, I mean, the, in, just in terms of sheer economic, uh, you know, generating of, of, of economic value, it's, uh, especially in the bigger cities, it's mostly just transfer money. So that right, money wasn't going there. to that, it right. would have gone to, you know, other restaurants, it would have gone to museums, it would have gone to other forms of entertainment. But the entertainment dollar is there. It's just a matter of where it's going. Now, they use this leverage to get these cities built, uh, threatening to move or, you know, it's like, but like the Yankees were never moving out of New York City. No, but yeah. George talked about moving for, you know, for, for, for 20 years. years. Right, yeah, he uses that leverage. And George is one of the, the three main players in the book, whether it's Selig. Uh, the book, and, and we'll kind of kind of get it back to that a little bit, the book kind of centers around, to some degree, um, three main guys, Commissioner Bud Selig, uh, Donald Fear from the Players Association, the union leader, um, who I think now is in some similar capacity in the NHL, I believe. Yeah. Um, or the yeah, NHLPA. Don Don's running the NHL uh, union. Right. Uh, and he's, you know, what, two, I think, uh, lockouts in his term there. Um, and then also um, Steinbrenner and the Yankees, uh, the Yankee owner, George Steinbrenner. Um, and I guess if we back up all the way a little bit away from the stadiums, although I wanted to start with that just because I'd just seen it. Um, and I always ask authors this, uh, why this book, why this subject? Was there a certain moment? What made you, uh, want to write 500 pages on the 20 year period that you did and the three guys that you focused on and the way baseball has changed through all these events in the book? Uh, well, a great, uh, great question, and I think that just as a as a fan, baseball has uh, grabbed me early, earlier than all the other sports, all of which I became big fans of, um, and has also kept that same hold on me that uh, that I've, I've always had. And as a journalist, baseball has had the most intense. Um, business uh, stories, the, the labor confrontation, which then morphed into, you know, how we handle um, a scandal, which in baseball was steroids. Um, it just so much happened, so much changed. And as a journalist, it was uh, just enticing to get in there and find out, okay, how did it really happen? Because, you know, when we do, I did newspapers for 20 years, newspapers for several vital functions, and it's, you know, sort of like, history written on a daily basis, but it is history written on a daily basis. What you write on one day, a week later, you can find out is, isn't true. And, um, and it's just the nature of writing and, and, and doing something every day. Um, so, you know, there's a commonly accepted narrative of how things came out. Like it was all the players' fault that there were steroids in baseball when the reality is that it was everybody's responsibility that there were steroids in baseball. So just kind of digging into, okay, there's a lot that happened. There's a lot. I'm not sure I know exactly what happened in here. And there's a lot of big name players that are doing this. And the reason I picked those three was because there were three basic factions. That, you know, the owners saw there was a tidal wave of money coming into into sports, and the people saw it were the owners, and they wanted most of it. The players they wanted most of it, and they're represented by the union. And the Yankees, who make an outsized amount of that money. And to see how it got sorted out, and as a journalist, having gone every three, four, five years with a labor stoppage in baseball and how they actually got it to work that it didn't work like that anymore, was like, all right, I really got to figure that one out because that was just such a horrendous 
part of being a baseball fan from 1976 to 1994 when they canceled the season, which, you know, is a, as a, as a fan, it was unbelievable to really get inside of how could you actually cancel a season in a World Series? I, I mean, know. that's just such a bad thing to do on so many levels. Um, so that, that's kind of like the thinking I had going into doing this. Who, when you're researching this book, and, and there's a lot of really heavy topics in here, um, and when you're doing the research for this, did you find certain people were harder to get to tell their story? Was there someone that wa- – I mean, I know you talked about Selig. I'm almost positive of that. Um, yes. Yeah. Yeah, and, I talked many times. Yeah. Was there someone or something that you felt a little bit of resistance? Like was there a, a certain person or, or persons or a certain side of the story that you felt wanted to be included in the book less or wanted the story to be told less? Sure. So, yeah, I mean, here's the thing. It's, it's really interesting. This goes in hand in hand with the question you just asked me about why this 20-year period what was really um, uh, interesting and, and certainly beneficial and rewarding was to find out that I wasn't the only one who was really interested in these last 20 years who was a, who was a baseball person. It seemed like everybody in baseball kind of saw that these 20 years really just changed everything. And it was just such a transformational era. And so people wanted to talk about it. And everybody, you know, wants their way of looking at at it to be the way that everyone looks at it, you know. And part of that is entertainment. Part of that is is ego-driven. So, um, you know, one of the challenges was to figure out when I was finding out what really happened and when people were spinning me to what they wanted me to think happened. And that happened a lot. That's just the nature of the game. That's what a lot of people do. And, you know, also people's you know, memories sometimes weren't as good as they are. Um, the union was the first people that, that bought in. They didn't think that their, the view of them for the last 20 years was very positive. So they absolutely wanted to cooperate and get their right. story told. Mm-hmm. And once you have one leg of the stool... Um, usually the others follow because, you know, they're not going to let somebody else tell you history about them unless they get to talk. Um, of the three groups, the Major League Baseball was the one that, you know, if they didn't have to work with me, they probably wouldn't have, but they felt they had to. Right. Is it kind of like one of those issues like, hey, this guy's going to tell this story regardless, so we may as well have our side in. Right on the nose. Yeah. Exactly yeah. that. You know, one thing that was really interesting to me personally, and I got a little bit of insight into it, is when the Marlins and the Rockies were the two expansion teams in Major League Baseball and they came into the league, uh, for a long time in that expansion process, Buffalo was a city that I think thought they could have been one of the two. And we built a beautiful ballpark, um, uh, maybe... You know, in 1998, absolute, or 1988, when it was built, absolutely the best uh, minor league uh, baseball stadium in the country. And they would draw right. millions of people at the time, outdrawing some major league teams. And it didn't happen uh, for us here. And I remember in 1994, uh, when the World Series was canceled and the strike changed, and uh, it changed baseball. And every year after that, people thinking, thank God we didn't get dragged into that mess because we would have absolutely been one of the cities that would not have been able to hang in major league base in that major league baseball that it was no longer uh the major league baseball that we thought we were going to possibly be getting into 
Uh, do you agree with that? Do you think Buffalo kind of lucked out not being picked um, with the economics of baseball, the way they changed around 94, uh, have killed uh, uh, the franchise here? Um, well, I mean, two things. One, if you're going to be able to threaten to um, move your team, then um, you have to have a couple of viable markets that um, you can threaten to move to. And Buffalo has, you know, owners of other sports and certainly owners in baseball have used baseball, I mean, have used Buffalo to their advantage um, to, uh, you know, to have a place to move. Right. You know, so I think that that's, you know, that was St. Petersburg, Tampa for a long time. It still is Las Vegas. People live in Las Vegas constantly hearing that teams are coming there. And they're never going to go to Las Vegas. Right. And, you know, whether or not they, they go to Buffalo, you know, uh, is, you know that, that's certainly a, a viable category. I mean, I think being a small market team in baseball today is as good as it, it'll, it has ever been. Uh, um, the, even the RSNs for the, for the, the, the regional sports networks right. um, for the um, San Diego Padres, they're making 40 to $50 million a year off of that. That's a lot of money. You know, you can start building a ball team before if you get if you start out with fifty million dollars in, in local money before you even sell a ticket. And they built you a nice uh, a nice stadium, so you there's a lot of revenue coming through that that stadium, and you're getting forty million dollars a year for national baseball rights, and another ten for merchandising. So that's another fifty thousand fifty million dollars. So you're for the San Diego Padres, you're making a hundred million dollars before you sell a ticket. That's, you know, you can right. start to have the, love, the, the way revenue sharing is, and, and the money they get in revenue sharing, the way revenue sharing is, has really leveled it out. I don't know that parity is a great thing. It's never been my favorite thing. But then I grew up in New York where I've always had the advantage of having the economic bullies as the owners of our teams. So it's, it's, uh, it's not, it's hard to, on an emotional level, identify with a small market because I've never lived in a, in a small market. You know, and I listen to people of Milwaukee just crucify me when I, when I talk about, you know, how, how I look at things uh, on that level cause, because I've always had Steinbrenner money to, to buy a team that I'm interested in. Well, you just mentioned the RSNs, and I can't remember who we had on here. Um, it might have been Verducci. We were talking about RSNs and how they've changed the economics of baseball. Um, Absolutely. And how, you know, how important – how the number one most important thing right now might be the RSN deal you make. That might be the indicator of, of competing. And in the book, you write a lot about uh, the Yes Network and, um, and how the Yes Network came along and, and maybe was the, uh, the start of this change. What about the Yes, ne- the yes right. Network? Yeah. I mean, the, the Yes Network was, was what changed the way um, – changed the equation. Instead of sitting there and selling your rights – um, you know, for a decent amount of money, but the market is set because there's only one cable system that's going to be competing for your, um, you know, for your for your team. Uh, you know, you now you're now the content now uh, becomes the uh, the network, and you're building equity in in your in an asset, which means that the Yes Network is worth four billion dollars. So on top of the money that it, that is generated. The owning a sports channel, especially in the world of a DVD where live programming is 
um, one of the few things that guarantee can, that can guarantee eyeballs for right. DVR, um, yep. For, you know, for television, mm-hmm. um, those things are worth more than the teams are. I mean, Yankees are worth a billion and a half to two billion dollars, and the Yes Network is worth three point eight billion dollars. Wow! Um, so when when they when John Henry bought the Red Sox, the jewel in that wasn't the Red Sox. Nothing. It is for you and me as a baseball fan, but right. the, as a for business, it was having eighty uh, percent control over Nothing. Right. And uh, so, so the Yes Network just proved how much money you could make by owning a baseball team, and that everything was undervalued. And that's what—that was really the importance of the Yes Network. And Steinbrenner did the same thing with um, with Adidas. You know, coming out of the strike in 1995, he comes out with a, a deal for Adidas for $110 million, uh, for 90 some odd million dollars over nine years. Um, and nobody was getting that kind of money even for their TV deals. So suddenly everyone realized that, hey, you could start you know, charging a lot more for, your, for advertising, I mean for, for merchandising, and that's a huge revenue stream. So George taught, I think, you know, whether it was he told the staff you have to come up with some ideas, and the staff came up with the ideas, and he endorsed them, they made a huge amount of money. Those two things completely changed the economics of baseball. You know, when I was in college, I had to. Uh, I was in this PR class, and we had to write. I don't know. Every week, we had to write something and turn it in. She, she was really uh, proud about what you <laughs> what you could write. And one day, I was writing about Bud Selig, and I remember I wrote two things, two similar sentences. One, I wrote, you know, the steroid the steroid debacle will always define. Uh, Bud Selig's reign as uh, as commissioner, and then a couple paragraphs later, I wrote that uh, I wrote that the uh, the strike uh, would always define his era, and she killed me on it. She pointed out, she's like, "You already said something's going to define him," and she killed me on it and pulled me uh, pulled me on the carpet on that. And when I was reading this book, I was thinking about all the different things that have happened in his reign uh, that could have fit for that sentence. And maybe I was right one of the times, maybe I wasn't. But as someone who studied uh, his reign as commissioner, what do you think? Maybe, maybe now, maybe ten years from now. Uh, but whenever we decide to uh, to declare it, what do you think will be uh, the defining part of Bud Selig's reign as commissioner of Major League Baseball? Well, I think I think that there's three things. Two of which you you've already mentioned. I mean, uh, you are a product of your times. The strike happened, yep. um, and that's a huge, you know, like Babe Ruth hitting 60 home runs and, and Ty Cobb stealing bases. Uh, this is, you know, this, it's a huge thing that happened in baseball. You know, it, 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 you know, baseball took a severe hit for the two years when they finally settled. Fans were really uh, unhappy about baseball, even, you know, went to games Fewer uh, people went to games, but they just really were, were ticked off at, at the strike. So if you're in charge when it happened, you know that's going to define your career. It's part of what happened. Um, steroids, obviously, you know, one of the biggest stories in all of sports is is steroids in baseball. And he was the commissioner during the entire time where it really came, um, to, it really grew, and then it blew up into, into a scandal. Um, so absolutely, that, that defines who he is and how he'll be remembered. Um, and then the third thing was how did he, you know, 
business-wise, how did he run the sport? And by getting, I don't know if there was anybody, certainly in the, in the early 90s, early mid-90s when Sealy took over, who had the ability to get um, 20, then 26, now 30 people who are all think they're masters of their universe because where they are, that's what they are, to work together and to be able to, um, you know, to the, make decisions based on the greater good, not just on your own good. And that, uh, that fundamentally changed baseball and allowed it to prosper because without that it was never going to work. And, uh, and, that, and you have to give him credit for that. He, he did that. So those are the three things I think that Bud Seelig is going to be remembered for. Now you talk and about... Oh, if yeah. you had to rank them, I would guess steroids would be the biggest steroids, one because yeah. it's the one that just touches on so much of, of the game that's public. Right. And, uh, and I think that you can't blame him for the rise because it happened and it happened across a wide number of people. Um, for whatever reason, so so if you're going to blame him, you're blaming a lot of people. But you can look at the way he handled it and say, is blaming the players and throwing them under the bus, um, as in, in, in some ways people thinking, so that your um, resume looks better, is that the best way to run baseball? And that's where I think he really falls down. Right, and those same players like McGuire and Sosa that he used to boost the game back up, after right. the strike, right? You can't. You, uh, I mean, first of all, it's completely unfair, um, and especially for the people who literally, in some cases, put their asses on the line, since that's where you shoot up with steroids. Um, to to then turn around and say, "I'm shocked at gambling in this institution." It's just an abomination, and to let them take the rap, and in fact, you know, that whole saga with Alex Rodriguez. You know, it was something that did not have to be anywhere near that drawn out and ugly, which did not help the sport. And he ran that. I mean, they hired 30 former federal agents to chase down every nasty little thing about this guy. Is that really necessary? I'm not saying he shouldn't be, you know, held to account right. for things he did wrong, but there's ways to do that. And did we go overboard so that we polished our image? And I think. You know, I think you can make a very strong case that that's what Butzilic did. You know, you also talk in the book about uh, George W. Bush, who is obviously a polarizing figure in the United, the history of the United States in the last twenty years for sure. Um, but one thing I always uh, try to remember positively about him, as I try to look for the positives in everyone, is when I look back at his eight years in power as president, no one can say that they didn't feel an amazing sense of pride and relief and hope when he stood on the mound in Yankee Stadium in the World Series to throw the first pitch. Uh, Probably the finest moment ever. Absolutely. Absolutely. Just an unbelievably powerful moment. And you talk in the book uh, about how he really wanted to be commissioner of baseball, and although that didn't happen, uh, he did use his owner as uh, being a minority owner of the Rangers as a way to to get his political career back. But did you ever take time to think about what baseball would have been like if he got his way? Uh, do you think uh, he would have been a good baseball commissioner? 
Um, to, to tell you the truth, I think that so much of being the commissioner is being a people person and getting people to to do the things that you want them to do and and, and that they have to do. And 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 I think also it certainly doesn't help hurt if you are really a baseball fan. And uh, there's no question that George Bush is a big baseball fan. And the thing that um, everybody told me who, because um, I put in several requests to speak with him. Um, he said that he, he would, but it never happened. Um, I've been there. So, uh, but what everyone says about him is that um, if you don't like him, you better not need him because he will absolutely charm you and you're walking away thinking he's the greatest guy you ever met. And if that's the way he is, and I'll take these people's word for it because they were the people that knew him and, um, and had no reason to, tell, to, to say otherwise, um, then he probably would have been able to do what Bud did and right. bring all the owners together um, and make it work. And so that being the case, I think he would have been uh, uh, terrific um, how he would have handled steroids because clearly they were doing steroids in, in Texas. Um, and, you know, and, and, and clearly it started, you know, it, it was going on on his, on his watch. Um, he probably would have handled it like Bud at the front end, meaning the rise of it. How he would have handled it as a scandal is, that's, that's a lot harder to say. And and I'm not ready to go out on a limb and say George Bush would have thrown the players under the bush, or George Bush would have been the Harry Truman saying the buck stops here, and I take full responsibility, and now I'm going to fix it. Who knows? But I think baseball, you know, it probably would have been um, as at least as good a place as it is today, and perhaps better. The sportscasters are here with John Passa. His book, The Game: Inside the Secret World of Major League Baseball's Power Brokers. Uh, is available now. You can get it at uh, Barnes and Noble. You can get it in digital formats if you like to read that way. And he's uh, also on Twitter. You can find him at John Pessa, and you can go to his website, johnpessa.com. There's uh, great information there in terms of other promotion he's done for the book, tons of great resources. A couple more things if you have time before I let you go that I wanted to uh, to touch on about the book. Uh, Jane Levy, this is actually back-to-back weeks. Uh, she gets brought up. Uh, we call her the first lady of the sportscaster. She's been unbelievably kind to us. And we first met her uh, when she was promoting uh, her Mickey Mantle book, The right. Last Boy. And um, she talked a lot about, you know, how when I asked her the question I asked you in the beginning about why this book, you know, she talked about how Mickey Mantle was her guy. That that when, right. when she was growing up in New York as a girl, that was her guy. And, um, you know, she very much wanted to uh, to write that book. And last year when Derek Jeter was retiring, uh, we had her back on and I said to her, you know, for many people, uh, Derek Jeter is their guy in the same way that Mickey Mantle was yours. And right. uh, when I was reading your book and when I was thinking about talking to you, I was kind of thinking about that. And I was thinking, I wonder what John would say if I asked him who he would feel uh, most confident about being their guy in the sense of, man, if A-Rod was your guy, it must have been devastating. Or if Bonds was yeah. your guy, it must have been devastating. Uh, is there a guy or a few guys that after researching this book and talking to all these people that you would feel really great about 
being your guy? Maybe is it Maddox? Maybe is it Jeter? Maybe someone else? What do you think about Actually, that? Actually, the guy. Um, I mean, uh, there's been two people. Yeah. Um, one was one was uh, Mickey Mantle because who didn't want to be number seven when I was growing up, and uh, and play center field for the Yankees, and especially if you're a Yankee fan like I like I am, and um, and then and then it was Don Mattingly, and um, and Mattingly's still going. I mean, he's still right. giving me something to watch as the manager of the Dodgers. So and now, so it's really good. If you were a fan of baseball in this era, right? If you were a John who grew up loving Mantle and Mattingly, and those guys didn't, I mean, Mattingly certainly didn't let you down. If you were that person in the 90s, I mean, who would you feel comfortable? Who would you want to say, yeah, that was my guy? You know, in terms of, uh, you know what I'm saying? Uh, yeah. Yeah. That's a hard question. Yeah, um, I know. The uh, well, it, I'll, I'll answer it two ways. Um, so probably the guy that that I followed the most in the '90s and felt like this is this is my guy um, was uh, was probably Paul O'Neill and 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 yeah, I mean it's probably Paul O'Neill for okay. the, on, on those Yankees. Yeah, you know, I just. It's, I identified with him. You know, who knows why you pick someone, right? Right. And and he hasn't um, and he hasn't disappointed. Right. Um, and uh, and I oddly find myself pulling for Alex Rodriguez. And um, I guess you know you know I mean he just got um, he took first of all he, he doesn't hand he clearly doesn't handle New York very well. I mean I think that's blatantly obvious. And finally, someone has finally convinced him that he has to live like this because he's been great this year to deal with. I mean, and it doesn't even feel false. I mean, when you were listening to Jeter tell you things, you knew that he that this was just, okay, it's been written down and he's just saying it. And he's a nice guy, but you're not, you know, we're on automatic when he's talking, okay? Um, it doesn't feel like Alex right now is on automatic. And that maybe maybe at, at soon to be forty that he's going to reach the maturity that one reaches when they're I don't know eighteen, um, which would be great for him because mostly he's acted like he's a stupid adolescent. Right. You talk uh, and yeah, I mean Alex, it's uh, it's weird. It's a different it's a different guy this year for sure. Do you, do you feel do you feel a little bad for him that he didn't make the All Star game this year? A little bit. I mean, yeah. I can, you know, I can see the argument why you wouldn't. And the reason why, here's the thing. The reason why Alex Rodriguez would be on the All-Star team is the same reason that Mickey Mantle was on the All-Star team in his last year. Or Derek Jeter. Right, because it's about stars. Yeah. Because he's Derek Jeter. Right. And that's why you're on, he's on the All-Star team. Okay, he's Alex Rodriguez. He's got 3,000 hits. He's got 600 and something home runs. You know, he's second in RBIs. I mean, he's, you know, number 25 now in hits. I mean, and the guy has just been an unbelievable um, person to watch play baseball. So why wouldn't you put him in the All-Star game? That's kind of the way I look at it. Right. You uh, you talk in the book also about uh, 2002 and um, how baseball maybe could have uh, could have had a similar... A destructive moment, but you mentioned, I think it's uh, three or four guys in that period that yeah, yeah, four guys. yeah, and one of them is the new commissioner. Um, yeah, yep. yeah. What have you thought about uh, the beginning of his uh, 
his reign. Rob's done a done a great job. Yeah. Um, to date, and I mean, admittedly, some of it is low lying fruit. I mean, if you've got a problem attracting young um, uh, eyeballs and you know young fans, uh, or a perceived problem because you know be, between uh, exhibition baseball. Um, in, you know, in 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 uh, spring training, regular season, and minor league, you sell 200 million tickets. That's 200 million people are going to baseball games. Um, so, you know, whatever reports that have been that baseball has problems, I think has been a, a little overblown. Um, and I'm sorry, but I lost track of what what. No, that, uh, what the question. That's okay. No, I just wanted to see what you thought about him so far. And oh yeah, yeah, and you know, so so he goes to so he goes to the uh, to to the Little League World Series. Duh! Right. I mean, something that you do, you know. And he's been out there promoting. Uh, he's a younger face, which which I think just feels just more energetic. I mean, and he is more energetic. I mean, when you're 80 years old, I'd like to be as spry as Bud is as he's 80 years old. But when you're 55 years old, it's different than when you're 80 years old. So I think you know. I mean, he's brought into it. I think he um, has handled every situation that has come up at least uh, competently, if not uh, spectacularly. I think he's done a great job, uh, and Bud Feeling, I know, uh, excuse me, I am told by many, many people is upset with him, and it was reported thus, um, that he figuratively put his arm around Alex Rodriguez and said, you paid your dues, and now you're back in baseball, and we love you. <laughs> and that's... You know, I think baseball needs to do that to get by, get past this steroid error, or else it's going to last forever. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, if you blame players endlessly, even after they're like, you know, uh, retired for everything that went on, then why am why are you telling me to like your sport? That's true. <laughs> you you got to find some players you like if you're going to want to like the game, right? And they, exactly. Nobody exactly. says, "Oh, my favorite owner is the." The Florida owner. That guy <laughs> exactly. <goes. laughs> Which, by the way, you know, Bud, that would be kind of news to Bud that you don't that, that you don't have a favorite owner, and it's not him. Let me uh, let me kind of end on this. When you look ahead twenty five years and you think about a, a guy like you that might want to sit down and write a book about everything that went wrong or right or whatever about baseball in the last twenty years, what do you think that book is going to be about? What do you perceive? Uh, as we go forward here, are going to be the big issues that could make up the game part two 20 years from now? I think exactly the same issues as we've just seen. I mean, there is going to be um, new challenges, uh, you know, new ways to enhance your performance. You know, some will be legal and some won't be legal. And, you know, we're looking at, at the, anything from different kinds of drugs to gene therapy to to what have you. So I think how um, baseball handle itself um, in terms of performance enhancing um, uh, substances or devices or, or whatever is going is going to be an issue. And then there's always going to be a mis- an issue of how you split up the money. And I think we may see that very soon. There might be a big test for Rob Manford because, you know, everything that I hear, and I stay in touch with all these people, Everything I hear is that um, there's there's uh, no worse than a, than than a fifty fifty chance that we have some sort of of labor confrontation, whether it ends with a strike or begins with a lockout, is a is possibility, and that's the most along those lines that I've heard of any time in the last 
15 years. So, you know, it's, and it's always about uh, how do we split up the pie. Right. And that's what it will be about. John Pessa is on Twitter. He's at J-O-N-P-E-S-S-A-H. You can find him there. The book is called The Game, Inside the Secret World of Major League Baseball's Power Brokers. We've been reading it. Some of you have with us in the book club. It's available bookstores near you on Amazon, digital formats. You can read it on your iPad or your Kindle, whatever you need to do. You can find uh, John's website, johnpesset.com. Uh, really enjoyed this. Thanks so much for letting us be a part of promoting it, John. Is there anything else you kind of wanted to throw out in terms of uh, promotion or anything I didn't cover that you wanted to make sure the listeners knew? No, I think we've we've covered everything, and 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 I'll say too that this this has been fun. Questions have been great, so uh, you really made me think about you know what I did and why I did it, and and uh, you know I, I I enjoyed doing it. And it sounds like uh, some of the people out there are enjoying reading it, and that's terrific. Absolutely. Thank you so much for doing this, and uh, uh, we really appreciate it. A pleasure. Call anytime, Steve, or text. Okay, sounds good, John. Thank you. (laughs) Take care. All right, I want to thank John... Pessa for being on the show today. I also want to thank Jeff Passan. Don't forget, you can find this week's podcast. You won't find last week's, but you can find the one before last week. The last podcast. And all of our other podcasts on our website, www.sports-casters.com. You can also find us on Twitter at sports underscore casters. And you can email us to sportscasters at gmail.com. And don't forget, I do have a copy of the Joe Poznanski book, The Secret of Golf. If you are interested, I have been such a mush mouth today. I feel like I cannot. I think it's the weather. And, uh, <sighs> All right. Why don't you, uh, why don't you start? All right. Uh, this past weekend, this is actually more of uh, your wheelhouse, but uh, there's nothing going on really this week. So <laughs> uh, your brother, Anthony, gra- uh, he graduated a, couple, a month ago or so, but uh, he had a party and we were invited me and my family and uh the one thing i'll say and i said it to my wife when we walked away is just this are a bunch of really nice people like uh your family the day family the uh just anthony's friends like that's so huge uh as a kid or i don't know like a young adult like so people you uh latch on to and stuff and anthony seems to have latched on to a bunch of really good people and i i think that helps shape who you are and it was an interesting mix too i mean there was friends of my parents friends of my brother greg friends of mine friends of anthony's yeah people from new haven i didn't notice yeah i did not know a lot of them you know what i mean people from new haven that came down uh friends of my grandparents just whatever it's a real interesting mix of people uh your son ryan was there and jesus for a nine-month-old kid yeah, he's huge. He is well-behaved, too. Yeah, he is. I, I tell everyone he's always happy unless he's sleeping. He just hangs out. Like, just trouble. nothing. Yep. He's hanging out with my buddy Eric. Yeah. I mean, he's a lunatic, and he just went to him. <laughs> yeah, and hung out with him. Hung out with him. Yeah. Me and you were sitting on, the, on like, a swing thing in the backyard for a good half hour. and Yeah, he just hangs out. He just sat there and watched. He's a good dude. Yeah, good Good kid. Your daughter seemed like she had fun. She loved it. She was chasing my dog around. She was loving that. Yeah, she did love the dogs. It was another one. Yeah, there too. yeah. There's a couple dogs there. She seemed to have fun, and you know, it was important to me and to my other brother Greg and to my parents to 
throw him a good party because, you know, he's given us so much too, you know, like all of those days that we spent as a family, uh, we probably wouldn't have otherwise. Sure. Yeah. You know, especially in specific times in our lives, uh, where the one thing that would bring us together, uh, was Anthony playing hockey. I've uh, in the pursuit of the degree that he got. Right. So we wanted to throw him a good party, so I'm glad we did. I've said similar things about Pearl Jam before that, don't get me wrong, I love Pearl Jam. So going to see the shows is kind of like the cherry on the top, but it's cool just to have an excuse to go on a road trip. Right. Uh, Cities we would have never seen. Sure, yeah. You know, so, I mean, it, never would have ran through the ghetto of Hartford to get here. <laughs> towed car. car right. yeah. But yeah, so I mean, I, I get that, why Anthony would be the same thing to your family. And we were, you know, we were proud of him, and it was important uh, for him to to have a nice party. It was good to see, you know, his best friend from college was there. Yeah, his best friend from high school was there. You know, um, one of his best friends growing up playing hockey was there. Um, you know, who was also sort of a high school friend as well before he went to the OHL. But yeah, just a really good uh, mix of people and, and a good time for sure. Uh, and he will now enter the world of. Uh, business i guess yeah and uh going to the city must have been like a when did he leave did he get back today yesterday he got back yesterday and he caddied for christian yeah, i was gonna today. say a rough yeah. rough day back rough day back right he caddies for what maybe your third favorite saber of all time something like that yeah so tough tough life yeah <laughs> tough gig he always finds a way to, to end up on top yeah i guess so all right uh one last thing for me today um virgil <laughs> <laughs> Uh, is in the news. <laughs> oh, no. I didn't know he was in the news. I know he was a meme. Um, okay. We should probably back up, right? There's got to be someone who's saying, who the fuck is Virgil yep. out there. All right. So, in the 1980s, the WWF, as it was called then, had a character called the Million Dollar Man. And he was worked by a guy named Ted DiBiase. Okay. And uh, as part of the gimmick, he had a bodyguard, an African-American bodyguard, who they called Virgil. Now, the story behind him being named Virgil, the guy's name is Mike Jones. Okay. Just as generic of a name as it comes, right? Sure. But they called him Virgil because it was a dig at the recently departed Dusty Rhodes, whose real name is Virgil. Oh. Now, at the time, Virgil Runnels, or Dusty Rhodes, was the booker for WCW. Right. And he had a little heat with Vince. Oh, I got you. So as a rib, Vince called the African-American bodyguard of the Million Dollar Man, who was essentially playing the role of a slave. Right, yeah. He was a, he was a, a butler or something at right. best, like a right. footman. Uh, he was calling him Virgil as sort of a, oh, uh, yeah. you know, a brush of the chin to, 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 to the American dream. Yeah. Well, anyway, um, Virgil did his run with Ted, uh, had a little solo run in the WWE. Uh, eventually ended up in WCW and was part of what many considered to be the worst moments of that company uh, as he was one of the most hated uh, and disruptive parts of the NWO ever. Uh, and I guess, really? you know, the, one of the old jokes says uh, when you need to get Virgil to join the NWO, the NWO is in trouble. <laughs> uh, right. And he hasn't wrestled since the WCW went out of business, partly because no one wanted to hire him and partly because he was one of the guys who had a pretty lo- long length of time left on his contract. Oh, really? And he was just getting paid to kick back and be Virgil. Well, that doesn't last forever. And uh, as we know in wrestling, 
uh, often neither does their money. No, I don't know if you're going to get to the meme part of it. But. Right. Um, in the years um, that have been past here, uh, Virgil has been showing up really anywhere people are showing up for other wrestlers. Right. Uh, and setting up a table uh, with a sign that always says Ted DiBiase, the Million Dollar Man, and Virgil. Right. Even though he knows Ted is never going to be there. Right. And often he's not invited there. Sometimes he's in the parking lot. Right, yeah. He might set up right in front of the front door of a comic shop, let's say, right. where someone else is doing an appearance. Yep. And the joke has always been that no matter where he sets up, no one else shows up. Yeah, Lonely Virgil. Lonely Virgil. And I think LonelyVirgil.net is where you can see the yeah, pictures. Yep. Now, this was started sort of uh, quietly by Sam Roberts of oh, really? the Opie and Anthony fame. He's the guy who started... LonelyVirgil.net. Oh, that's funny. Now, Virgil probably would have uh, stayed in that sort of obscurity if not for the brothers who have resurrected the career of the Iron Sheik. Okay, yeah, yeah. Now, those brothers uh, may be seeing kind of an end to the run with the Sheik. Okay. The Sheik is old. The Sheik is broken. It's a mess. And... There's just only so many legs, right? They yeah. got the documentary out of it. It's had a great run on Netflix. I'm sure he still does an appearance or two here and there. They've done a great job with the Sheik. But I think they thought they needed a new venture. And they've decided on Virgil. Virgil should latch onto this. I, didn't, I don't know the story, so I'm yeah. just saying what I think he should. He should latch onto this and run with it. If they can do what they did for the Iron Sheik, he kind of yeah. had a second 15 minutes. Paige Megan uh, is... Uh, 35-year-old Toronto-based event promoter, and his brother works with him, and he said to Sports Illustrated, quote, this is honest. This is what he has to do. Don't make fun of it. Don't call it pathetic. This is his life. Uh, In the article on SI.com, he talks about spending a day in the subway, um, signing one autograph for 20 bucks, and getting $1 from someone else. Uh, but it was kind of a turning point day as Virgil's Twitter was verified. And sort of like the Iron Sheik, these guys are trying to build him that way. Yeah. And they're using the Iron Sheik as kind of a rival with Virgil. Okay. You know, and I was not surprised when I heard these guys were behind uh, this new Twitter account. Uh, he doesn't even have a phone, Virgil. So he, he's not making these tweets. Wow. Just like the Iron Sheik is not making those tweets, right? These guys are kind of – these are their puppets sort of in a way. You know, the, the Iron Sheik and Virgil. Um, he was on. They got him a, an appearance on the Sam Roberts show. Uh, he's at The Real Virgil on Twitter. How did he feel about Sam? Did he not – Oh, it's interesting. You should hear it. Oh, yeah. Um, he's not happy with Sam, I don't think. Okay. You know, but with all wrestling, you never know um, when the work stops and when the work right, begins. Right, right. Um, more quotes. Uh, maybe I'm crazy, but my hope is I can show people a human side to the hustle. Um, recently, he landed Jones a night as a bodyguard for a bachelor party at Niagara Falls. For $1,000, Jones held the championship belt and blew, it, blew on dice at a craps table. All right. 
So I'm sure he dressed up in the tuxedo, worked the gimmick, probably had some bills. Yeah, if he can make friends with the gag a little bit, I, I think he'll be okay. Like, Sam might – it's kind of funny, but it might almost be like a thing. Like, oh, I want to get my picture with Lonely Virgil or I want to – you know what I mean? Like, it could be like a bit of a resurrection. Now, I think it would probably be short-lived like the Iron Sheik's was, but uh, – I mean, the Iron Sheik's Twitter was huge for a minute there. Right, it still sort of is. Yeah. A quote from Jones now. You can go 8 to 5 in a job, or you can go 8 to 5 in the San Diego Comic Con. The hardest thing is going out and putting in 8 hours a day, jackhammering concrete. You're out there by yourself, jackhammering concrete. Um, he's from Pittsburgh. He claims he taught high school at Central Catholic in Pittsburgh, uh, but they have no record of it. Okay. Um, so... Maybe not. Uh, maybe he did it under a different name. I don't know. He still looks good. Like you, he... yeah, he's in good shape. Yeah. Um. So yeah, I thought it would. Uh, it's interesting. Yeah. I, uh, I... Oh, and the and the kicker. Oh yeah, you said he's in legal trouble. No, no, no. Oh, okay. No. Uh, the kicker is, um, the brothers have started a GoFundMe. Okay. For Virgil. Uh, it's called "Help Virgil Become the Million Dollar Man," and I'll read to you the description. It's been shared, by the way, about 10,000 times now. Okay. Remember me? I am Mike Jones, a.k.a. Wrestling Superstar Virgil. I'm verified on Twitter now, at The Real Virgil, which means I am the real deal. I've been around the world 30 times, and my life has always been about the hustle. I started out in the old WWF as the bodyguard of the million-dollar man Ted DiBiase and said to myself, now, it's now my time to be the millionaire. If you have watched wrestling then you know who I am. I will inspire you that million-dollar dreams can come true too. Show you love for your favorite wrestler ever by giving me $1, $10, $100, shit, $1,000, and make me a millionaire. You can make this happen. I will forever be grateful. Every day I hustle, and now I'm trying to show the world that this dog can be taught new tricks. 10,000 shares. It's been up 21 days. How close to his $1 million goal do you think Virgil is? He is not in five figures yet. Not only that, uh, <laughs> he is not in four figures yet. Oh, no. He has raised $135 of his $1 million goal uh, in 21 days uh, thanks to the kind donations of 10, 18 people. Wow. Um, I almost feel like we should make one that says, like, just – Instead, if you really don't want to give to Virgil, give to us instead. Yeah, See sure. if like that one can outpace it. Will Blake says, I canceled my WWE Network subscription to give this money to you, Virgil. You're more entertaining than anything on there anyway. Uh, $5 from John Bartling. Virgil, I got you, brother. Here's to the good life. Hope to see your booth with a long line at the next show. <laughs> I, I hope those brothers do... The, the two brothers are able to do something for him. www.gofundme.com slash make Virgil a million. Everybody's got a price. Everybody's gonna pay. Because the million dollar man Money, 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 money. 
cost a lot.